Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. As usual, you can find our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, you pick it, we're there. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to thepanjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. I mean, nowadays with YouTube and like this, the whole multimedia aspect of everything, like Curtis and I have talked about this and so something, I mean, I, the, my thing is I like to write, you know, like I, I love, uh, you know, writing as much as I can. And, and I've been, the, the reason I didn't continue down the academic wormhole, talk about the Chinese degree earlier and do the PhD is because I wanted to take a step back and focus on my own writing. But the question is like, can you even be an author anymore or do you have to be a multimedia personality who writing is just a component of that presence essentially yeah it's it's almost like you're selling a brand now it's not an individual um art form Mm -hmm. and it's um music is like that everything's like that so it's all this it's like a combined uh celebrity that allows you to do this one thing you know and you're like yeah uh, it's 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 a branding thing, I guess, but it makes it really difficult. I don't I don't know how you get discovered these days. I don't even know how that works. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine. Lots and lots and lots yeah. of marketing. Yeah. I was yeah. talking to a friend of mine yeah. a couple of days ago about that. It's like, what do you, what do you, where do you bend the knee, and where do you kind of stick to the things that that you want to hold true to? Because I, I mean, I, I hate that stuff. Like I, marketing for me is a dirty word, you know. Yeah. And like I I am not a good self promoter. Like I just, I don't have that bone in me at all. I know it's ironic that we're sitting here talking on a podcast, but I mean, to be fair, a successful Curtis, podcast too, a, <laughs> as a result of marketing, <laughs> yeah, which Curtis has done all the promotion and all the marketing guru stuff on. And, but for me, it's just not, I don't have that, that tick. So maybe I'm just archaic and I'm, I'm antiquated. I think in a lot of ways when it comes to that kind of stuff. I mean, I mean, marketing doesn't have to be a four letter word. It just, it's, all it really is is letting people know that you exist and making sure the right people know about you. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to bend the knee or you don't have to, you know, or get on a knee worse. Um, it just means like, hey, like I'm doing this thing and, you know, the internet makes that possible. And it's literally just a matter of spending money, really. You know, if you're willing to invest money in yourself, people are going to find out about you. It's pretty simple formula. <laughs> is that just so disheartening?
<laughs> it's so different than it's ever been. I mean, people people are yeah. always having to advertise themselves. Like we were talking the other day, like Charles Dickens didn't just like write a book, throw it on a shelf, and like hope somebody found it one day. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's there's there obviously there were there were marketing networks back then. There were still you know word of mouth advertising and you know storytelling and stuff like that. It's just modernized now. Well. Part of our storytelling here on the Panjoy Podcast is to include a diverse range of guests. And so uh, joining us today is Matt. Uh, Matt was a, he comes from a very different background for the Panjoy world. So um, Matt, normally the way we kick these things off is kind of let you give the elevator spiel of of the background for your job. Your job was not in the military, so that kind of don't give us the elevator spiel. Give us the the yeah, but the, the a little, the, more. <laughs> little bit more on that. Give us the introduction to, to how you ended up in Panjoy and the kind of work you were doing there. Yeah, so thanks for having me, guys. Um, appreciate being on. Uh, so I was a um, Department of the Army civilian employee, so uh, a GS employee, and uh, the role that I I took on was to provide intelligence support. Uh, to uh, conventional and special forces uh, units in Afghanistan. So I was um, what was considered to be an individual augmentee, meaning um, I was deployed to Afghanistan, but I I didn't actually know uh, any of the units that I'd be working with. And uh, so I'd essentially show up one day. They, They would know that I was coming, but I wouldn't know any of the people that worked uh, that were in the the units themselves. And uh, my role essentially was to provide um, a capability that would allow the the commander to better understand what the uh, some of the social and uh, cultural uh, forces that were at play um, in their area of operations. So um, that could be anything from talking to, to local villagers, local leaders, uh, local governance officials at the district level, um, and as well as uh, Afghan security forces. So um, I would go out um, sometimes on combat patrols um, with with guys like yourself um, and go out and have access to those in the village, kind of see what's going on. Um, I would go to district, uh, dif- uh, district uh, police compounds, army compounds, uh, district governance facilities, talk to the uh, people there. Uh, lots of shuras, um, and then ultimately, then report back to the the commander uh, for whatever the unit was that I worked with, and I, I worked through a couple of different units um, while I was in Afghanistan, and uh, basically take my orders from the commander uh, or the senior NCO in terms of kind of what what they needed, and um, just run with it from there. So that's in a nutshell um, what I did. Now, I mean, they, but they weren't your boss. So you you took guidance from them, but like, if they told you like, "Hey, hop in this vehicle and go to this base," you'd be like, "Nah, bro." Like, how 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 did that work? I mean, obviously you don't want to like play that card, but at the same time, like, it's like, "Hey, I'm here to help you, but I don't work for you." That's an I didn't even I never really thought of it that way. It's an um, interesting point. So I did have my own civilian uh, command structure, if you will. So I had a team leader that was my direct boss, if you will. And then there was an upper level, um, an upper echelon uh, leadership cadre that was at either at Kandahar Airfield, and then there was an even higher echelon group of leadership at, at Bagram. So it, it, 
I couldn't, I would say that at the local level, I would not be able to tell the commander, I guess I could tell him I wasn't going to go, but he'd probably say like, well, I'm not They're sure not. you're going to, if this is going to work out, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so I, I would never have, um, I would never have, unless it was something that was, you know, extreme. I mean, there was no instance where um, I would have, I would have said, no, nah, I can't, I can't do that. Cause ultimately my job was to support, to support him and his men. Right. So I'm, I'm there for that reason. And uh, if he needs me to go out and do something, as long as it's, it's within the realm of what I'm allowed to do, then I'm, I'm going to do it. Um, so I never had any, any issues along those lines. So when you say within the realm of what you're allowed to do, like, what do you mean by that? What were you allowed and not allowed to do? Yeah. So it's when you're a civilian, it's, um, it's a little bit different, right? So there's everyone has basically the same rules of engagement. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so I did carry firearms. So that's probably an important distinction to make. Right. So, but I'm not there to be an offensive capability. So I have those weapons for defensive purposes. So I'm allowed to use them for those purposes. Um, but I'm not supposed to be going out on offensive operations where like I would be explicitly not kicking in the door and you know, kick, right. running, running the mind detector up front. <laughs> now, if that, if, if that happened and I was there and it was just necessary to do it for defensive reasons, that's a whole different story. But um, I wouldn't be allowed to do that with that explicit offensive purpose. And I wasn't supposed to uh, do collection on, I guess, purposeful collection on, on the red side. So on adversary um, forces that would lead to targeting, for example. So, so, it is interesting because you really can't control what people tell you. And ultimately, you might get information that really isn't in my lane, but, and this did happen. And then the guidance was that if you get information that needs to be passed on uh, related to uh, enemy activity, let's say, that could result in some sort of uh, offensive capability being used. I pass that on to the two shop. I say, hey, this is what I heard. This is what I found. Right. It's not really in my lane. I give it to the guys in the Intel shop and then they do whatever they do with it. Sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, if, if you're trying to, to dive through like the cultural uh, activities and societal, I don't know, norms of, of the, of the Pashto villages in that area, you're, you're going to run into that. You're going to be like, Oh yeah, that guy's Taliban. Oh yeah. That's where his IED factor. Like you're going to like, you're going to stumble across that stuff. You can't dive into neighborhood affairs in Panjway and not find Taliban. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the, the people that you're talking to, they don't they don't know what my job is. They don't know what my role is. So um, they probably just think you're a lieutenant. <laughs> yeah. Well, outside of the, the beard, probably was yeah. the giveaway. With well, with the conventional guys, it was probably it was a giveaway. But um, I would have guys come up to me that um, when I was working with Seventh uh, Group, so that's Army Special Forces. Guys would come up to me, local nationals, and they would just like tell me, "Hey, I need you. This guy, I'm getting harassed. Here's a phone number that keeps calling me, and they're they're saying they're going to kill me. Like, can you do anything about this?" Um, so they don't know me from right. anyone else, right? So they just give me that information, and I pass it on to the the two shop, and they they do whatever they do with it. Now to to back up, um, and before we go too deep in, how did you come by this? Like what, what brought you to, to this role? Um, you know, your, your education background, I mean, just to find out about the job, how did that play out? Yeah. So I was, um, I was in graduate school and this was, um, around 2010 and, you know, this is just after the recession and sequestration and everything. And so hiring in the federal workspace is 
is pretty diminished at that point. And I wanted a job that was either in uh, the Intel world, uh, maybe DOD, maybe something with federal law enforcement. And it was really hard to even get your foot in the door at that point in time. So I was, I'm just kind of looking around trying to figure out, like, what am I going to do um, after I get out of grad school in 2011? And this guy that I was uh, friends with, he, he said, hey, there's this, uh, there's this job that I just looked at. And it sounds like based on your background, because um, I had a background in uh, research, um, psychological research, and then was doing a master's in international affairs. And he said, you know, I think with that combination, this, this job would be really, uh, you'd be competitive for this job. So I looked at it and it was, it was really unusual. It's like, you know, you go in, you get hired, you do some training, and then you deploy downrange. At that time, it was to either Iraq or Afghanistan. You work directly with uh, NATO forces on the ground and you get to go out and you get to talk to people in those countries um, at, the, at the local level. So I, I thought that was like fascinating, like who gets to do this, right? So, um, so I looked into it and submitted an application and I, I checked all the boxes. Um, you know, at that point I was in my early 30s. I was married, but I didn't have kids. So I wasn't really encumbered at that point, you know, with responsibilities domestically. And so I was able to do it. And um, it was, a, I can talk about, I mean, there's training component to it. There's a lot, of, it was a couple year process ultimately. Right. Um, but that's how I found out about the job and the, the academic background I had that got me, I got my foot in the door. And there was, there was a, not necessarily like a basic training, but kind of like a gentleman's course version of basic training that went along with that, right? Yeah. So there was, uh, it was six months of training in total. So it was a three-month training period, classroom training at Fort Leavenworth. That was like kind of like DOD to 101, like how to understand like who you rank. And or rank, like exactly. Yeah. Like how the military works. Um, and also some nuts and bolts about the job we were going to do. And um, after that, then it was a three-month uh, boot camp at Fort Polk. So the training class was comprised of... Uh, it was half and half military civilians. So there was, uh, it was us, people that were doing the type of job I was doing, I guess about 25 of us. And then there was about 25 Air Force and Navy personnel that were, um, I think, mostly medical personnel. Right. Medical or legal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the training itself at Polk was is actually really useful for me because I'm not prior military. So um, they kind of gave you a crash course on a lot of the different things you might you might encounter or need to be able to do if you're with a if you're with warfighters and you're, you're out, um, in a war. So we had to qualify with, uh, M4 and the M9 to uh, do some IED training, a lot of IED training, actually, um, learn how to clear rooms, um, do some KLE training. That's cause a big part of what we, we actually did. Um, and then we had language tra- training as well. So, um, kind of a lot of the same stuff that I, I would imagine that, you guys would have done in training, but just not at the intensity level that you guys would have done it at. If I if I could, um, you, take you a- might have gotten more than we did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you probably got better quality training than we did. That's for damn sure. Yeah. If, How many push ups did you do in that six week period of time or six months? <laughs> we, we weren't required to do uh, PT. That was the only yeah. thing. I <laughs> so I could work out got better quality. <laughs> <laughs> could work out on my own. That was which was nice. Um, right. Yeah. But yeah, everything else was. Um, like I said, it was useful. Like all the stuff that I uh, they taught us, I, I used most of that. I mean, um, 
you know, NVG train, uh, training, we had to learn how to shoot with those on. We had to learn how to operate with those. Like trying to drive with those things on is mm, the different real, ball of wax. That's pretty, yeah, it's pretty hard. Um, but I felt like I could do it, um, after I got the training. So ultimately it was, uh, not at the intensity that, you know, you guys would have gone through. Um, but it served, so its, pur- the, served its purpose. There's the proof in the pudding right there. Cause you know where I learned to drive under MVGs? Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we had a we had a private that drove his very first vehicle ever, ever ever not like a car. He didn't even have a driver's license. First thing he ever drove was a thirty eight thousand pound MATV on a on a combat mission. Hmm. He did he not. Cra- he crashed. He, he was not a good driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I mean, you went into this job knowing full and well you were going to go to either Iraq or Afghanistan. So. Um, like, what was your kind of thought process for where you might end up? Because I'm assuming that you don't really know. You could be in the middle of calf eating Pizza Hut every day, or you could end up in Panjway, or you could be in Bagram or Jalalabad or whatever. So, you know, what was your kind of mind game, or how did you process, like, I could end up being in a really bad place? So they actually, um, they let us put in preferences for where we wanted to be deployed ultimately. So... I was of the opinion I wanted to be where this is the 2012-2013 timeframe. So I wanted to be somewhere where there was actually still, I felt like there was a more of a uh, chance for me to make a difference. There was, it was still kind of an active area, if you will, not somewhere that was uh, more, more settled. Um, so I, I put in a preference to go to uh, Kandahar or Helmand, Southern Afghanistan in general, just based on that premise. And then, so of course they they initially assigned me to Mazari Sharif mm. after I had put that preference in. It's like the complete opposite of what I was looking for, right? So, <laughs> right. Um, so that was what they assigned me to. So I just was like, well, okay, I guess I'll go to Mazari Sharif. It'll be beautiful, and the Germans are there, and I'll hang out with them, and um, that's that. But uh, they ended up cutting that team, that location. And then they shuffled some people around and they were like, okay, do you want to go to, do you want to go to Kandahar? I said, yeah, that's, that's where I want to go. Um, and they said, okay, well, you're going to go to Panjway. And I knew, I knew what Panjway was. Um, I knew the reputation. So I what just had, kind of, what had you heard? Yeah. Birthplace of the Taliban. Um, <clears throat> one of the most active kinetic areas in the country, hmm. statistically at least, which was based on what I saw statistically was, was accurate. I mean, you know, yeah. it was one of the, <laughs> the you know, stats matched up. <laughs> ma- yeah. Um, so that was, uh, that was, that was basically it, but just the reputation of it being a, like a Taliban, like a, an ideological stronghold, if you will. Um, uh, that was, that was well known, but it was hard to find a lot of detailed information online at that point. It was some stuff about, uh, you know, some of the Canadian operations uh, that had happened, but it wasn't anything, in detail, really. And the Bales event had already happened at this point, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, that had already happened. So that was, yeah, I guess I would have known about that at the time as well. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you know, like after I found out I was going to go down there, it did reorient my thought a little bit because if you think you're going to go to a calmer area, you're not quite as, maybe approach that a little bit differently. It's a little more a little more relaxed. Um, once I found out I was going to Panjway, I was just... I, I I know I, I talked to a lot of the guys that I was in training with 
that were civilians at the time, but they were prior military. Uh, right. Good buddy that was a Marine. He'd been in a number of, uh, he'd been to Fallujah and a bunch of other places and a couple other army guys that had been in combat. And I was just, just kind of talked to them and just asked them a lot of questions about like, Hey, you know, what do you, how, how do you, how do, how should I approach this? Um, how do I set my kit up? You know, like what kind of gear do I need? Because, um, you know, I had some flexibility as a civilian, like they, we got all, we actually, they gave us all the same stuff that they gave to you guys, um, as issue, which, um, but a lot of it's like, if I don't have to wear this, I'm not going to wear it kind of stuff. So yeah. nice to have that option. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like long like, sleeve shirts. <laughs> right. So like I wanted to be able to run, um, and not that, so I bought a plate carrier. So I had something a little bit lighter. Um, mm-hmm. so I was able to do all that stuff, but I was able to talk to guys that knew what they were doing and be like, Hey, what should I buy? Like, I don't really right. know. And, um, what kind of holster would you get for, you know, for the M9? Cause the one they give you is like a canvas box and it doesn't work. And, I remember uh, that. <laughs> uh, so, so it was that kind of stuff, I guess, like preparation wise, hitting the gym really hard just to make sure I was in really good shape. Um, my wind was up that I wasn't going to be a physical liability. So I didn't show up, you know, to like meet you guys on the first day and you look at me and you're like, really? Like this guy's going to go out with us. You know, I didn't want to be that guy. So, <laughs> right. Right. So I, I, I took that really seriously um, because that's not only for my well-being, but for the guys I was going to be with for their well-being to make sure like we're all like mm. we're all on the same page, like in terms of like physical capability and like I'm not going to be a drag on anybody. So that was that was that was probably sure, one of the big. Yeah, I'm sure the dudes you worked with were appreciative of that because <laughs> anytime the word civilian came down the pipeline, the you, you begin to worry just about those particular issues like, oh, can this guy slog it out hell not even civilian just certain jobs i was, I was, gonna say, I was be, thinking about the combat cameraman combat, with yeah us. exactly oh, what i was man. thinking yeah it's like <laughs> they said oh you're gonna have a combat photographer attached to you on a, on this patrol we're like oh shit oh, here we go <laughs> like, we're gonna have to like sling load this dude out of a grape row somewhere but and the so, irony <laughs> is the first one we got was legit he was really good he, he was, was really fit yeah, and he was—he was like a former infantryman. I was like, "All right, all right." And the second one we got was not. <laughs> That's all we'll say about him. Yeah. We took him on the easiest patrol we could possibly take him on, all flat, all fields, no grape rows, nothing. Literally, like a half a mile out and back. He and was like, he, he fell out. I'm like, yeah, oh my he was god, destroyed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure the guys you fell in with really appreciated you. Yeah. yeah, having the foresight to think about that too. So to ask the questions, not just yeah. assume. Yeah. So when Do you, you remember got, your first patrol? Um, I, it, there were so many grouped together at one time at the beginning that I, not explicitly, but hmm. I, they kind of all, a lot of them blend together because sure. some of them, it's like nothing happened and you just like every village right. kind of looks the same. Hmm. They, they do. <laughs> sort of, so. <laughs> yeah, it might have been like, uh, it was probably, yeah, I can't, I can't remember actually. It might have just been like, I think I had gone to some, like I'd been up to Spirwangar at some point just for like a Shura, but I don't really, it wasn't like a patrol, you know, it was just, just going up to, for a meeting. But, um, there was a flurry of patrols I went on and would have been November through January in particular. Mm-hmm. That, that was with Adam when I was at Masamgar. And so I was with conventional guys at that, at that point in time. And, right. and there uh, went through around to a number of different bases. Um, so went out to like, uh, to Shoja and Kenjikak, uh, went out to Spine Boldax outside of Panjway, but went out to there for uh, a few weeks and then, uh, probably did the most, uh, running around between spin, 
Spien Boldak and uh, I guess it would have been Chaos Company, I think, out of Kenjikak, if I if I remember it right. I think that's who it was. One three two. I don't. I may have this wrong. Does it sound right? Uh, I think it was one three eight. One three eight. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Then they're, yeah, they're the ones that replaced us. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So those those guys were. Um, we went out with those guys a bunch of times, and uh, they had a pretty austere setup there. They didn't have. Mm-hmm. That was the most austere location I was at for sure. It was, um, you know, ration food and um, no heat in the tent in January that we were in. I mean, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they didn't have any creature comforts there at all, but they were going out like every day. So um, we, we got to go out with those guys a bunch of times. How did the how did the terrain? How did you? What was your reaction to the terrain? Well, I mean, what were you expecting? And what was after you walked around on a few patrols? What was kind of your your response? Yeah, the uh, the grape rows were challenging. <laughs> so did one a couple patrols through those. Um, that were several kilometers in distance and uh with all that gear on that's that wears on you i mean that's a long it's a long slog when you've got you know whatever 50 or 60 or more pounds of gear rattling around you're trying to jump over those things and but yeah the whole i mean just the look of the uh pantry it's such a weird place you've got these like right yeah like like sort of mini mountains if you will like and then mm-hmm. and then it's all just flat and there's no trees maybe because the soviets took care of that um in the 80s i'm guessing that was the rumor that i heard that's what i'd heard that they defoliated a lot of it Mm -hmm. um so it was not um the easiest terrain to walk around but it was the nice thing was i guess is that you could see pretty clearly i mean it was relatively open so it didn't didn't feel claustrophobic like you're in a like a dense wooded area or something and you can't see in front of you this is this is a lot of this is in the winter time so there's not Mm -hmm. as much foliage yeah, yeah Yeah, so I can think of a few times, yeah, uh, but that makes sense. I mean, the winter yeah. it, would, it would open up so much, I would oh, think, yeah. because you know, because mm. the leaves would be off the trees and the grape rows would be dead. I mean, it yep. would be like a barren wasteland out there then, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I know one thing always stood out to me was just there was there was you could never walk for more than a hundred meters without having some sort of obstacle. Mm-hmm. Whether it was a canal or a wall or a grape row or a tree or a tree line or something, like yeah, unless you're walking on a road, which was a terrible idea. I don't know if that was hopeful. Hopefully, that you you didn't spend too much time walking on those. No, no, we didn't. We um, typically were were on foot and trying to just stay off the beaten path. And I mean, I'm yeah. just fo- I'm just following the you know the, the EOD lead yeah. wherever they mm-hmm. tell me to go. I'm I'm going. Um, so, but yeah, we generally stayed off any of the any of the uh the major thoroughfares and uh yeah the villages are like it's like it's it's crazy you walk into these villages for the first time and it's just like going back to like it's like biblical times you can't it's almost Mm -hmm. like unbelievable how Mm -hmm. yeah even though you've seen pictures of it yeah once you once you walk out there and you realize like people live here this is this is this is is real this is real (laughs) yeah Yeah, yeah. this is not like a mock village and Mm -hmm. uh these are all mud walls that people built themselves um mm-hmm. there's no electricity there's no running water except well maybe the mosque speaker i mean they've got some electricity but i mean mm-hmm. basically there's not there's no infrastructure at all and I mean, uh i have a very distinct memory um of looking through this the windshield of a mad v and it wasn't a, a far leap of the imagination to think i was on another planet you know, I was thinking like, this is what it would be like to go and like 
to another planet and you know Moss set up, Eisley, set up man. Yeah. <laughs> Banjoy is Moss Eisley. It really it is. looks <laughs> just like it. Yeah. I I felt that way when I got off the plane at CAF when I j- had just mm-hmm. gotten there and I got off the plane and I like looked around and there's all like the blimps up in the air and the mountains and like I was just like where am I? Like this is I know I'm supposed to be here but this is this is kind of surreal at the same time and then you you go in and you go into that old like Soviet terminal I guess that yeah, they built. Yeah. That's <laughs> I totally right. forgot about that. Yeah. And <laughs> just like man this is I can't believe I'm actually like I'm actually here. here. This yeah. is Yeah. It's took a took a few days to settle in and get over the jet lag and everything and but it was um yeah, it's 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 pretty bizarre. Like once you actually like step foot into that mm-hmm. environment, and yeah, it's just like nothing I've ever seen before. It's totally foreign. Yeah. Probably nothing like you'll ever see again unless you go to another that that same part of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean even even East Africa has more modern infrastructure and equipment. And if you really want your mind blown, when I went back in seventeen, pretty much every backyard in Panjway had a solar panel and lights. Like there were lights when you flew over Panjway. It was the craziest thing. Wow. Yeah. Huh. That's amazing. Some, I mean, that's some awesome. NGO paid billions of dollars to put solar panels in like everybody's backyard because everybody had them. Hmm. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Pretty wild. Um, now, so obviously you're going on these patrols, but you're you're basically a passenger until you get into the village. And that's kind of when your work starts, right? Yeah. So um, usually I would have... A list of questions that I would want to ask. So if we're, if we're driving into the village, yeah, I'm a, I'm a passenger. Um, we get out, go into the village and, uh, I'm, I'm basically following, you know, the unit's lead. So if you guys tell me like, Hey, we need to, we need to leave. Then, then I leave. I don't, I, you know, I, ultimately my job is to, you know, for security purposes, I follow what, what you guys are telling me to do. Um, but I'm, I'm looking ultimately when I get into a village to talk to people that either um, look like they might have insight um, or people that we haven't seen before or that no one knows who, who this guy is, maybe someone of interest. Um, and then, you know, you just kind of shoot the breeze with people in general, just try to talk to kids sometimes, too, because they're a little more uh, open with what they say, um, kind of assess the atmospherics. Of, of the situation, you know, are there are a lot of people out. Is it dead? Um, do people seem relaxed? You know, does it seem like people were expecting us? Um, and yeah, ultimately for those initial four months that I was there with the conventional unit, it was pretty, a pretty broad mandate to go in and just kind of talk to people generally about the security situation. Um, any elicit any insights they had into the, the effectiveness of the local government any gripes they had, you know, so if somebody starts to, um, if you start to key in on somebody talking about something, they're complaining, you know, try to like, you know, bring, bring more of that out, right. Try to open up the conversation a little bit. And, uh, you know, sometimes you find out interesting things that are going on, like a water dispute or something between two villages, uh, that just might be good for us to be aware of. And that's, yeah. that, and that was my whole, my whole focus. So, you know, you guys are, when you're out, you guys are worried about security. Um, you're worried about, you know, the enemy. And my job was to worry about the local population as much as possible. And, you know, you guys are obviously watching my back while I'm doing that. 
but um, I was able to sit, be able to focus specifically on that. Um, and that was my entire job. Whereas, you know, I knew, I knew you guys had a lot of other roles and responsibilities um, that didn't allow you to maybe focus as, as fully on that. So that, that's, that's basically what I would, what I would do in those situations. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, but you know, there was a, a clear demarcation in what you were doing there too. Like you weren't there to gather, like I said, gather evidence to build target packages. Like you were there purely as a support. So, you know, what, what were some of the like really distinctive differences between the kind of intelligence that you gathered versus what maybe the typical infantryman would think of as intelligence gathering? I don't, I think ultimately the lines probably blurred quite a bit because sure. you can't really control what people start talking about. Um, so I, I would imagine you guys were probably asking probably a lot of the same questions. Um, but your my your, your goal, I guess would be, your end game would be different than what mine was potentially. Yeah. So I mean, our uh, end game was to kill a motherfucker. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, I mean, I, I think, I think about like the LTs, like when the LTs are doing their Kaylee's, I met they're asking a lot of the same questions, but they're probably, you know, their scope is really small. So like they're worried about this village, this, this RAO, where we, the villages that we go to, whereas you're trying to get like a broader picture of like all the villages, all the Pashto people, all the tribes that are in Panjway and Kandahar. It's like you're piecing, I feel like you, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you're piecing together a bigger picture, whereas the LTs are like, hey, I seem to know why this guy, who this guy is and if we can make this guy our friend. Yeah, well, part yeah, and part of that would be trying to just, you know, keep an updated map of who's who in these different villages because it's really difficult to keep track of who these guys even are. Right. So yeah. you could have a, you could have a leadership change at a village, uh, a, a village, uh, the village level and not know about it. And so you might have a different elder or a group of people that are now in charge. Um, so if you can figure that out, if you can figure out who's in charge, uh, it might be useful either at the present. So you're meeting with the right people when you're in the village or at least somewhere down the line, when you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, who do we talk to, when there's a problem in this particular area. So I think, I think a lot of it was just trying to like, some of it was because you don't know if people telling you the truth. Some of it's trying to like, just use your eyes and like figure out like who looks like they might be somebody, but mm -hmm. at the same time, trying to talk to enough people that you can kind of triangulate potentially like who's who, and maybe come out with a better sense for who some of the important players are in a particular area. Um, but you have so little time. Sometimes you go into a village, you might only have mm. an hour or less, depending on what happens. And um, uh, I, I found it very, it was very challenging. You, you could walk in there with the script and it pretty much never panned out that way. I mean, it's just, you had <laughs> yeah. to, you had to improvise. Think on your feet. Yeah, think, yeah totally. Um, and just go with what happens. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, Curtis, but that's, no, it it, it, it it very much does. Um, and it, it, may, it may gave me another question. We had heard that the village names change often based on the elders that are in charge. Is that true? I had not heard that. Okay, uh, it's not, probably not true. Well, it, 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 <laughs> it may be. I mean, I, I, I don't think I had heard that, but that's certainly possible. But, uh, yeah, I think I like the smaller villages, obviously like the big ones like like Sketcha or um, Talakan or Adam's Eye. Um, obviously, those never change. But like they're like little ones. Like the one that comes to mind is Haji Ghul Muhammad. You know, that sounds like a name to me. Yeah. Um, 
And I remember something weird. Like we went there once. We're like, oh, we're going to Hajjigul Muhammad. I was like, oh, no, this used to be Hajjigul Muhammad, but Hajjigul Muhammad moved to that village. So now that's Hajjigul Muhammad. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I don't know if it was real or not. I may have just like misheard it or something. But mm-hmm. it, it was, I do remember the village name thing. I was like, man, that sounds like a person's name. It's possible, and it's. Uh, I mean, there were there would be like these sub tribes of sub tribe clans, basically that we would hear. Uh, and we were like, "What? I've never even heard of this before. Like, what is this?" And I couldn't tell if they were messing with us or if it was actually like a real group of people, and that was the name of their clan. But right, I, I mean, there's only like so many levels we were able to like drill down and understand. And at a certain point, it's like you're talking about like individual families, at, you know? And, right. And I don't think we ever got. I think that we barely understanding. I don't think so. We barely had an understanding of like the top level stuff. Right. Even after like at the time I was there after 12 years. Um, I, I think there was a lot below that that we never we never figured out. And we never, probably never would have. No, I mean, yeah, think about it. I mean, if, if the Russians invaded, you know, Alaska tomorrow, how long would it take them to figure out like who every family is and who owns every single business and you know, like they'll, they'll know the big players, you know, the big families or the, the people that are the politicians and the police chief and stuff like that. But you're not going to know what Curtis Grayson does, does in his cabin, not unless somebody, not unless he does something really interesting, um, which Russians, I would do something very interesting. You would know who I am. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of levels of people in Panjway. You had, like you said, you had like the big players, you know, the politicians, but you had like the Coochies who were like the, the nomadic tribes. You had like these. The, you had immigrants, you had Pakistanis that didn't live there. And I don't know, it's how, how was it trying to navigate like who belongs and who was relevant? Uh, it's very difficult. I mean, you could get a general sense. You know, we had heat maps that we built over time that tried to break down tribal affiliations across the district. And um, I, I don't know how they did that or validated any of that. It I, I couldn't. I couldn't make any sense of it, honestly. It was it was hard to figure out. I mean, you only talk to such a small sample of people. Um, so it's like, right. well, this guy said he's a sock size. So, okay, I guess he is. But I, I imagine at some point they uh, they probably surveyed the area, um, sent some people out, tried to get a sense for what the uh, kind of a census was for the area. Um, but Do you remember how many tribes there were? Not, I mean, it, no, not, not specifically, no. No, I mean, it, it was, like I said, there was a heat map that kind of broke down. I mean, it's all Pashtun, right, for the most part. Sure, I mean, right, right, 99%. Right. Yeah. But um, beyond that, I mean, it's like it depends. Are you talking about like, you know, like a like a high-level super confederation or how far down do you want to break it out, right? And right. And it gets more complicated um, where you get down to like the clan level. Um, and I, I feel like we barely had a sense for like what it looked like just at a macro level. Yeah. And uh, so it, it was, it almost, I don't know how important it ultimate, ultimately was um, to some of the things that we were doing. I thought it was going to make a big difference to like understand all those dynamics. And it, it did to some extent. I shouldn't minimize it. Like understanding like that there's tension between Norzai and Ajaxai, that matters, right? Because right. There, there's a traditional tension between those two groups. And it's explainable. And if you know the history, you know, you can. You can understand where that comes from and why one group is aligned with the Taliban primarily and why one has been aligned with NATO forces primarily. And that does that does provide insight that's useful. And it's useful to know a little bit about the Asakzai and kind of the, how they were marginalized historically and what their reputation is, how they were tied to the Taliban very strongly. 
Um, that was the kind of stuff that I keyed on more than anything. Once it got down below that level, it was like, well, that's interesting, but I don't think it's really going to help us do anything. So it was right. almost like a distraction at that point. So it kind of runs contrary to what you would think I was trying to do. But I, I learned pretty quickly that that wasn't going to help you guys out to do your job very much um, unless it was tied to something very specific. So um, I the, the examples I just gave are more of what I focused on. And I almost feel like the more micro you get, like the less permanent, you know, like if you get, if you're getting down to like, well, that guy doesn't like that guy's like, well, they might change their mind next week, but you can yeah. get to like the higher level. Or clans. one of them might catch yeah. a hellfire next week or yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a good chance of that too. So, I mean, that's, um, so one of the things like I really, like I'm intrigued by the academic aspect of what you were doing, but in reality, you're forming a kind of academic research mentality in a war zone. So for you, like on a personal level, like how did you balance the academics slash investigative aspect of it with the, just the sheer brutality and reality of being in a place where war was going on? So when I got there, what I tried to do was apply and what I was supposed to do was apply more traditional research methodology to develop a better understanding of what was going on. And I did that for a few months and I wrote some papers um, and did some more like longitudinal studies that looked at, um, that were looking at, uh, you know, data that, that spanned across a lot of different participants, uh, multiple months, wrote a big white paper up. This was related to uh, the concept of professionalism amongst Afghan national security forces. Mm -hmm. And it was a really good paper, but I don't think ultimately it, it resonated at all with the audience. Um, it was methodologically sound. Um, it was done the way you should, you should do research in a, in a methodological sense. But what I found was that the audience I'm working for is the military and you guys have very specific needs. And what I found was actually more useful rather than doing these longer pieces was just doing a sit rep every day. And if something really stuck out, go talk to the commander and say, Hey, I think we should maybe write like a, like a five page paper up on this and get it distroed out to everybody. It might actually be useful. Right. Um, but I didn't, I, I tried to do, I tried to do things the more academic way initially. And I think things just took too long. The papers were too long and I'm not sure if it was just digestible enough for a lot of, a lot of people, given how fast things are going every day, everything's moving so quickly. Right. So they're I, not going to take the time to read it. Maybe they're, yeah. they're not going to take the time to do it. And, um, so I, I, I have to say, I just kind of changed my tune. And one of my team leaders, when I moved over to work with seventh group, he was like, Hey, we're, we're going to do a sit rep every day. Um, that's, that's the format we're going to use to communicate information. And if we can expound on that or expand on that, we'll do it. But this is it's a military audience. These guys need they need stuff quick and they need it to be brief and factual and just like, you know, your opinion. If you want to put a couple things in there, that's fine. But let's keep it. Let's keep it tight. Right. And I, and I actually I found that it was actually far more effective than than trying to do that in that in talking to people directly. So briefing. Uh, guys on the ground talking to them uh, individually or in small groups um, mm -hmm. it was a lot more effective than my my research approach so I kind of threw I, honestly I didn't totally throw it out the window I still kept some of that rigor but I had to adapt to that environment because it just there just wasn't enough time to 
to do things in a way that I would do them back in the U.S. If I was like formulating a study and, you know, trying to get something to an IRB and like write this long paper, uh, mm-hmm. just, just forget it. Just didn't. It just didn't work. I mean, so um, to kind of just pick up on that, what you were first talking about, that first paper and that first little bit of research that you did where you focused on the Afghan security forces. One of the things that we that made a big impression on us was that the Afghan army that we worked with were not from Southern Afghanistan. They were from basically ethnically, they were Uzbek or Tajik or whatever. They're from the far flung Northern regions of the, of the country. So is this something that you, uh, you were able to do a little research on and digging on, or is this something that you noticed? I mean, yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah. I, so I, I did talk to a lot of guys, especially, um, there was a lot of Hazara in particular yeah. that I, mm. I remember being yeah. down, um, when I was at, at Speen Boldak and at Panjway. And, and hmm. it, so, um, Break down the, the Hazara thing a little bit, if you don't care. Yeah, so the um, Hazara is the main distinction um, is that they're they're Shia. So you know, you have, uh, within Islam, generally speaking, you've got uh, Sunni and Shia. It's kind of the the equivalent of you know Protestant and Catholic, right? There, um, there are both Muslim, but they don't get along necessarily. They have some different beliefs, um, and some Sunnis would consider Shia to be heretical. Um, they have very strong disagreements about their interpretation of Islam. So, um, and they look very different. So, Hazara, if you look at a Hazara man and a Pashtun man, they have very different features. Um, Hazara mm-hmm. men look more uh, look more Asian, I would say. Um, yeah. And so they're very distinct, and it's easy to tell. You can tell the, the two apart physic by the physical characteristics. So, but it's it, the religious piece is probably the main. That's the main driver of differences um, between the two, and they live in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but in talking to, uh, some of the Hazara police and, and soldiers, uh, I did ask them, you know, like, does it make a difference that you're Hazara and you're in a Pashtun area, you know, like how does that factor into how you do your job? And the, they said that it was helpful because there were so many people that were connected by, by lineage that were Pashtun in Panjway or Spin Boldak, wherever I was, that, it made corruption more more of a problem because people knew each other, whether it was through cross border trade or if it was just in the local area. So he, those guys felt like they could do their job without as much bias because they weren't, they didn't know people in the area. And I think that was the logic in sending people from different ethnic backgrounds uh, into different parts of the country. So you didn't have as much cronyism. Not sure how effective it was, but at least there weren't those direct connections. Um, right. So they, I, I know it was hard for those guys because they would they were far away from their family. They didn't see their families for a long time, and it was tough for them um, to to be so far away and in such a foreign place. I mean, I, I wouldn't imagine any of them had spent much or any time in that part of the country their entire life. So, and they didn't get it's to very go different, very different, yeah, yeah. And I know if, I know one thing we noticed, um, and you know, we we talked to Rusty Bradley a couple months ago on like an informal a pre interview, and. Uh, you know, he he was like, man, like the if they weren't from Kandahar, they just didn't fight as hard. You know, so you had a you had a trade off. You had like, yeah, they they weren't as exposed to the corruption, and they weren't you know they weren't doing side deals out of their pockets. But they also, at least, and this was kind of our experience with our ANA, our personal ANA was that, man, it would get, getting them to work was tough. Yeah, they just they didn't they weren't really motivated. Like they're like you said, they're far from home. Like this isn't their people. This isn't their land. 
Um, they miss their family. They never get to go home. They are already getting, not getting paid much at all. Um, so I, that's one thing we keyed in on personally. It was that it, I agree with you. I see where they, why they chose to do it. Um, like I said, we do it in our military. We send people all over the country. You know, if you're from Texas, you might, you can get stationed in California, you know, suck it up buttercup. Um, it just didn't seem to be as effective. What about, so we, we were talking a little bit in the pre-interview about, um, the beard and I really would like, <laughs> I, I know this is, uh, yeah, obviously you wore one, um, when you were with both the soft and the conventional forces. Um, but when you were, you also got to observe the differences in the way that the soft and conventional forces were treated. How give us our glory, glorious justification for having beards in, in Panjway. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you guys should have. You guys should have been allowed to grow beards out. That's the bottom line, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one is that the you know the beard is a sign of Pashtun culture and a lot of cultures for that matter, but uh, of transition from you know being a boy to a man, right? So once you can you can grow your beard out, it's it's a, it's a sign that uh, you become a man, right? So it's a signal of masculinity. And Pashtuns they're kind of contradictory in a lot of ways, but you know it's a very male driven culture it's very masculine culture and um so having the beard it helps you i I think in some ways it's maybe an intangible but i think it helps um it helps it helps you identify a little bit with the other person you're talking to um these guys the postumes they take a lot of pride in their beards if you look at the way that they're they're manicured they're they're brushed Mm -hmm. they're clean um dyed in some cases yeah i mean so I, th- I think it it made um, some of our guys, especially you know younger soldiers or Marines, look uh, even younger than they they already were. And I don't think that helped with rapport building. I, th- I think it could uh, it, it's it was more helpful to have you know have a beard, look a little more masculine, a little older. Um, it's an intangible. I can't quantify it, but it's just to me, it's like from a rapport standpoint, it just made you look more formidable. And it made you blend in a little more. And it's, you know, it's like a psychological trick. You just you kind of like start to identify with people that look like you a little bit more. And mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, we, we definitely, mm-hmm. the soft guys, you know, the, most of them could have beards. And that probably helped to some degree with them building some relationships and just looking a little meaner, which might have helped um, in some instances, right? But, uh, but you know, the, you guys um, on the conventional end not being able to do that. Um, like a lot of a lot of NATO, NATO forces were able to grow beards out. I think the Canadians were able to do that, and some other um, some other countries. So, I just think it would have helped you guys like just look more, um, just kind of integrate with the culture a little bit, and um, just look a, a little older and a little more formidable. And I think that would have gone a long way. Maybe it's hard to say, but I think it would have helped with interactions when you were in villages to to have that kind of presence. But you know, I can't I can't I can't prove that. It's just you know, it's just what I see. I mean, here's a here's a crazy leap of of imagination, but I almost wonder if like the baby faced eighteen year old smokes your uncle, and then they go so, back and they're like, "Oh, uncle was killed by a baby," so I've got to like show my manhood and right. go out and fight back and and take vengeance. But if that eighteen year old had a big, thick, bushy beard, they'd be like, "Well, he was killed by a warrior, right?" And he died an honorable death. It may not be as and, crazy of a, a line of logic as you think. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious to know if that's a realistic. Uh, well, I mean, look, look, at, look at it this way. Imagine we went to war, 
And like, if you got smoked by like a Chinese foot soldier, mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh my gosh, man, seriously. But if you got smoked by like a Chinese like tier one guy, I'd be like, all right, all right. <laughs> you know what? Fair's fair. You know, so yeah. I could see that. I, I don't. I don't think that's a. Mm. I don't think that's a logical. Well, especially in that culture, where so much is wrapped up into the machismo um, and in the, the performance of these. Uh, what modern American culture would call toxic masculinity, and in a lot of ways, it's not wrong in terms of past you culture. Like it's, it is a um, their conceptions of what is manhood and masculinity is is deeply flawed, and that's something that we've touched on a bit here on the podcast too. Is um, on one hand, they're growing out their beards and they're manly men, and they they go out and they shoot at the Americans, but on the other hand, they indulge in some illicit behavior at least by our perspectives and our conceptions of that. But I think just in general human decency, uh, that is definitely not something that a, a real man would do. So, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, but Matt, I mean, you've definitely gotten a little bit more of an insight on this because of the nature of your job into the uh, uh, rank pedophilia, for lack of a better way of putting it, that this is so and absorbed into pastu culture and especially at least in Panjway in southern afghanistan it's, it's so inherently in and tied into the culture of it that you have this dynamic of an older man who engages in probably non-consensual sex with a younger Defin- boy definitely non-consensual yeah deeply non-consensual yeah. with a younger boy who might be 13 12 you know maybe yeah so what was what how did that come into your job in your day-to-day work so the first um i had heard about homosexuality and relationships between adult males and boys before i deployed that was something that was talked about in training at some point um i think some guys that had been over there before and uh the first the first uh experience I had seeing that, well, this was between two adult males. I remember I went to uh, an A&A base. I think it was out, I think it was outside of Speed Boldak and they were planning an operation and it was Thursday. And uh, Thursday was uh, euphemistically referred to as man love Thursday. I don't know if you guys had ever heard that phrase I before. I do remember that. I didn't know there was any factual basis to it. Though. <laughs> well, so I, my understanding was that because you, you go to Moscow on Friday, that Thursday night was kind of was party oh, night. Get your sin on, yeah. And you would, okay. you would, you know, you could do whatever Thursday night. Then you go to mosque, you're absolved of your sins, mm. and that was mm. that was my under, That was the explanation okay. I was given as okay. to why that happened. But I remember um, being on this base, and it's Thursday, and seeing these two guys come by, and they're all made up. They're both a, they're in their uniforms, A and A guys, and got makeup on, fingernails painted. They're holding hands. They look really happy. And I was like, huh, that's that's interesting. Like you wouldn't see that in any disciplined uh, military, I don't think. Um, and that was, you know, probably just part of a broader thing that was going on within the unit. But that was the most blatant thing I saw uh, between between A and A. And uh, generally speaking, I, I didn't see a lot of that with the with the adults. But I mean, I remember on this this one uh, this one district uh, chief of police compound, there was this one. There was this one kid, he was probably, uh, it's hard to gauge age, but he looked way too young to be there, you know, and he's, he's wearing a uniform. So like, it's kind of like, uh, like a token, like I'm a police officer kind of thing. Like, you know, so we don't question it. 
but you're like you're looking at this kid and you're like no, i don't i don't see how this kid is actually um old enough to be a cop there's no way mm. but but he's there and he's hanging around and he's serving tea and you're like okay well i mean there's really only one explanation as to why this kid is there you can't chai, prove it. chai boys tea chai, boys yeah the term chai boy um and there's also you know uh term that and there's actually there's actually a pretty good documentary on this um the term is bachabazi so it translates to boy play and it's mm. uh boys that are trafficked by older wealthier men and then they they dance for them they dress up in female clothing and then they're basically pimped out from there um mm. so so that um yeah so the the whole idea i guess is that this is such a intricate subject right because it gets mm-hmm. into like why is it like this you know like why is this condoned why does it it's an open secret essentially right so like it's not really talked about but everybody knows it's happening and nobody says anything about it uh and nobody you can't and we can't really do anything about it because we unless you see something happen i mean you right. don't you don't know so i think um you know if you try, try to figure out like what where did this come from you can read historically about uh, instances where rulers in that particular part of the world had relationships that were documented in some historical text with with boys. But I don't know if that really ties into modern day Afghanistan. It's kind of hard to make the connection because the culture has changed a lot. People have moved mm-hmm. around a lot. I think the explanation is simpler. It's probably just like when you have a repressed society where you, exactly. don't, you don't have interaction that's sanctioned or allowed between men and women. I mean, that that aggression, once you have a male that hits puberty and they have all that testosterone and they yeah. don't have an outlet for that, it's going to come out somewhere, right? So, yeah. ultimately, I, I think ultimately what happened was these these older guys that have some money and some power, it was just a natural extension of that where they had the influence where they were able to, uh, you know, coerce these young boys who are probably, I imagine, in all cases were poor, didn't have much. And they're able to offer them gifts, which, you know, they provide them with. It's not just a straight up, I take you and you do what you want. It's usually like, here's some money. Here's some here's some gifts. This will help right. your family. And they kind of, you know, groom them that way. And then um, the cycle just repeats itself. And it uh, it just seems like it's probably uh, been going on for a while. It's, we really don't know because the history is so vague in the country on stuff, especially right. on stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was almost like. It was pretty open from what I saw. Like it was just a step below. There wasn't like we're going to do something in front of you, but it's like you got guys walking around with little boys, you know, holding their hands. You're like, mm-hmm. you know, you know what's going on. Um, and it just didn't, there wasn't any shame in it. It was, uh, but I think it's the repression piece of it where you just, you, you just don't allow any interaction until marriage. And then women are treated like they're just childbearing. They're just chattel. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And and so the saying one of the other sayings was that what women are for childbearing or yep. for babies mm-hmm. and boys are for pleasure. And yeah. right. Yeah, and I've heard uh, that too. So that was my general impression of it. Um, you know, they would you guys probably had this happen. You know, you get hit on sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um well not not me, I was too manly. Oh <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, no, but we did have a couple a couple of dudes especially. Kobos, Kobos. was a uh a, a Frequenter of yeah. receiving affection. Because he was young. He would just he young, turned 18. Super baby-faced. Didn't, didn't have a hair on his face. No. Couldn't grow it if he wanted to. Big, like, squishy cheeks, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he was dark-skinned kid, you know. Yeah, so he kind of fit kinda, that milieu a little bit. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got he got propositioned a few times, if I remember correctly. He did quite a bit. So it was it was not an uncommon thing for the younger guys and the more like like we were just talking about the the more youthful looking fellas to get blatant propositions from these men of power. You know, these men in local district, whatever the the police chief or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's why you needed the beards. That would have helped. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It's, well, it's it's it's, it's it's uh it's a natural progression to that, you know. Like you said, like you were talking when we were talking about the beards, like it imbues masculinity, it imbues power. You you're perceived as an adult, you're as a mature warrior, whereas you know they see Kobos in uniform the same way that we that we see the the kid with the the. The adolescent with the painted nails and the made up face walk around hand in hand with the other innate that like to them that's like a parallel mm-hmm. um, because that individual hasn't grown his hair out yet yeah. either so to them it's like oh well that must be their chai boy um, and they made that comment is that your chai boy uh, no that's oh, cool well. <laughs> I mean uh, no definitely not our <laughs> but it's it was always ironic to me and uh, maybe ironic is the wrong word you know, the Taliban launched out of Panjway by murdering, you know, a, several warlords who were abusing children. Like yes. that, that, that is what that was the origin of the Taliban is like some kids had been kidnapped and they were being used as sex slaves. And Mullah Muhammad Omar and his gang of, you know, students, Taliban, went out and they, 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 they killed those guys. And that they became like these local heroes for standing up for these children. Um, and it wasn't just the Afghan police that were doing this. I mean, Taliban commanders and Afghan police were basically the same guys. Uh, and they were all engaging in this behavior. So for like this to be a common thing mm. in Taliban controlled areas and it just, it's just so at odds with what created the rise of the Taliban. Yeah. I guess that's the point I was getting at. I wonder if it's, it's kind of like, uh, the parallel might be to, uh, you know, rape in, in male prisons, right? There's mm-hmm. Could the prisons really stamp it out if they wanted to? They could probably get pretty close, but the reality is that it, it does give them some level of control over the inmate population to allow hmm. certain things to happen. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that the Taliban, for one, I don't think their their reach is as strong as people think it is from a centralized position, right? Sure, so, certainly. Yeah. So yeah. they've got they've got all these entities that they're trying to these appendages they're trying to control in the periphery from like you know one centralized or a couple centralized Shura locations while we were sure. fighting them, and um, I imagine there's only so much they could even do if they wanted to to try and That's stop them. Point. It's kind yeah. of like well, these guys are pretty much doing what we want them to do. They're fighting. Like, let's not be too hard on them. Like, if this sure. is happening and it's quiet, then we're just going to let it happen. And I imagine mm-hmm. that was that was part of the thought process that they just yeah. they knew they couldn't control it, and they had to give their guys something because they were just getting you know mm-hmm. blown away, every getting their days by asses hellfire. kicked. Yeah, yeah. Um, and th- I I think that's probably got something to do with it. It's not going to go away. Yeah, well, probably I mean, the same thing can be said for the drugs. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, the Taliban had pretty much stamped out opium production before we showed up. And Hell, now, the, the it, former was, Secretary of, um, let's see, it's in that Ghost Wars book, but it was like some kind of bureaucrat met with the Taliban to discuss exactly that, like stomping out the drug thing before nine eleven happened. Yeah, so, yeah. Like like a, it, couple, like a few weeks before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that when we invaded, opium production went up like a million percent 
over the period yeah. of time. Yeah. I, and Taliban, I'm sure it's the exact same. There's like, Hey, we can't tell them not to grow opium. That's how they're making money. We need them to make money so they can buy, you know, guns and yeah. so that we can continue ageist war. Like to me, it has always been a flaw in the Taliban's claim that they are this, they're religious and they're purely a religious entity because it, it exposes that they really are a, a political entity. They're, they're, they're yeah. seeking out power. If they were purely a religious entity, they, that kind of stuff wouldn't yeah. be allowed e- even passively. But you know, it's interesting that um, of all the issues that, that the U S and NATO forces made big PR issues like women's rights, for example, you would you would have thought that child welfare would have been something that would have come up at some point. Like mm. this is a this is a pretty big problem, and I, I don't I, I want to be clear. I'm not making the uh, assertion that like everyone does this in Afghanistan. Right. It's yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely not everybody. But there's a side. I mean, it's it's fairly commonplace. I think it's fair to say. Um, mm-hmm. And nothing was. Re- I don't think anything was ever really publicly said. So I, so I guess the question would be like, well, if you make it an issue, what can you actually do about it? Right. So. Mm-hmm. There were certain things that we could do to actually improve the lives of women, at least in some of the more metropolitan areas that were pretty effective, you know, schools and um, more relaxed dress standards and just access to healthcare, those types of things that you could control. But with the abuse that was happening in the more rural areas, like what would you actually do to fix that? And I think everyone realized people, decision makers realized, and even people on the ground that knew what was going on. It's like, what can I actually do about this? Is there any way I can address this that will make any difference? And I think the answer is probably there wasn't much that could be done. um, Yeah. And and frankly, sometimes you had bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Sometimes it was about getting back to the cop without getting fucked up. Yeah. So like that. So you had to kind of compartmentalize that this kid is essentially being raped yeah. Uh, and you had to just set that aside and be like, Hey, that's part of the culture. That's part of how they operate. But right now I want to get back to there so that I can take, you know, I'm not getting shot at. Well, I think the difference where the kind of line gets really blurry is when it goes beyond, like, I think I know what's happening there to like, I know what's happening there and I saw it. Yeah. Or yeah. I saw or heard or whatever. Like I have more than just like intuition. Yeah. And, and that that's, I, unfortunately I never had to deal with that. You know, I didn't, I didn't see anything that went beyond supposition. Um, but, you know, it happened, you know, there was the, the SF guy that, you know, they, they almost ended his career for beating a you know yeah. police chief to a pulp over it. Yep. Um, you know, and I think that's one thing that, the military did a very poor job of us. There were absolutely times where they knew for a fact it was happening, not like beyond supposition. And the fact that it wasn't a widespread campaign is like, hey, if you see this, tell somebody because we are like, we're the United States of America. We should not be allowing a warlord or a police chief or a politician to remain in power just because he's like he. We like him if we know that he's diddling kids. Like that's fucking bullshit. Mm. Um. And I, I I know why we did it. I know, you know, everything we just discussed, but I, I just, me with my, I'm not even a religious person. I just, I just have a conscience. Yeah. And like, if it, it blows my mind that the United States of America knew for a fact in many cases that this was going on and we're like, no, nah. like it wouldn't oh, just 
it, it really infuriates me. Yeah, I, a lot of people feel the same way. Um, you know, guys would talk about situations that um, you just knew you couldn't really do anything about. Even if you, I mean, like I said, not, it's not like you knew, knew, you didn't see anything, right. but you just, you, you looked at the situation, you're like, that's just not right. Um, the way it looks, it just can't be right. Right. And ultimately, um, I don't feel like there were any tools to really address that. And yeah. ultimately, you're, you're kind of like, you'd be forced to choose between ruining a relationship with someone that's maybe providing you with intelligence that's keeping your guys safe mm-hmm. um, and trying to extricate someone from a, a abusive situation. And that may not even be successful. So you may end up with without yeah. getting the kid out of that situation. And then you've completely destroyed that relationship. And I think the decision that was typically made was like, we're just not going to like even like we're just going to put blinders on and right. This isn't yeah. happening. And, uh, we don't, we can't verify anything. So we're not going to deal with this. And that's, that's, mm. I, I, I'm sure there was, there was a way you could address it, but I don't know what would have happened if you, if you'd taken that up the chain of command, yeah. um, you'd have to be damn sure. Yeah. You know, and I, the, the parallel that comes to my mind is we know that the ANA AMP executed prisoners. Like, there's no question about that. There's so many anecdotes like, oh, yeah, we dropped the prisoner off at the compound, and as we're pulling out the door, we heard two shots. Hmm, weird. Um, But you didn't see it happen. Mm -hmm. But in the rare instances where you did see it happen, like we did, like on camera, (laughs) you know, at that point, like, you have to go in and arrest the person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to go and be like, hey, dude, I understand this is Afghanistan, but you've got a camera right there, dude. And but that same mentality didn't translate over to the child abuse. Like even if you had proof, they didn't care. And I, that that's the part that blows my mind. Even if hard proof, we would still rather keep that police chief in power for, like you said, for the value of the intelligence and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but so after you know, you spent you said about about four months with the conventional forces. Yeah. Um, then you basically had a complete dynamic shift and you went and you worked with one mm. of the ODAs over at the district center, right? Cause, Cause that's the thing when you talk about the nature of this job, it's like my first reaction is to think SF, like that's yeah, just that, a natural that's marriage, where it should be, yeah. you know? Um, so what, you know, you got to bridge those two worlds and you got to spend the majority of your time with SF, right? Uh, yeah. Nine, nine of the 13 months was with SF. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you got, you got a, a good chunk of time with both, but you got the bridge both within the same environment same place and this and more or less a similar mission set and things like that. So what was, you know, what was that like? So I, I agree with you. I think that this, this role was actually sort of unintentionally tailored for SF. It really mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense within what those guys do and how they work. I mean, with their, uh, foreign internal defense sort of mm-hmm. focus, right. Training, um, working closely with, with the local, governance and security apparatuses. Um, I found it was easier to do my job with SF because mm-hmm. one was that I had better access to people because um, I was at the district center. So the AOB is kind of like the uh, the the hub for a number of ODA spokes, if you will. So the, sure. AO- the yeah. AOB is like the local uh, command element, if you will, underneath Special Operations Task Force South, which is at CAF. And then from the AOB, you've got, uh, you know, guys out at Bell and Bay, you've got an ODA and Zare um, at the time. And um, so I being at the district center was really helpful because I could 
I was within walking distance of a lot of the people I actually needed to talk to on a daily basis, right? So right. that's that's a huge, I mean, it's an access uh, sure. bonus for sure. I don't have to get in a vehicle and drive anywhere, if, like if I don't, unless it's for a different purpose. So you've got within that compound, you've got police, you've got local governance, um, you've got local police, you've got Afghan SF at some point moved in. And then a lot of people just like, it's the district center. So people come there, right? Like people from all over Panjway, they have business there. So they come right. in, they want to talk to the district governor. They want to talk to the DCOP, the district chief of police. Um, so that was just kind of like luck, I guess, in a way that I was, when I moved over and worked with the SF guys, that I had that level of access. Um, the other piece of it was that uh, I had a little more freedom to kind of chart my own course, I think, versus... Um, with, with the conventional forces, um, there were more layers. It was a little more bureaucracy, if you will, um, where I, like, I didn't have a direct line at all to the, uh, to the commander at Mossamgar, right? Like he's, he's a busy guy. He's got like, you know, several hundred people under him. And, uh, I would talk to, uh, the three or the two. So the operations or, uh, Intel, uh, guys, you know, that were under him. And that was generally where I would kind of get my marching orders. Um, so there were, there were layers of, it made it harder to communicate and figure out like, what am I actually supposed to be doing? Like, what do you need? Cause I felt like I needed a little more FaceTime, um, with the commander. I just, I never got to talk to the guy really. Um, so I think that made it harder to do the job, even though I know those guys speak for him, it's just, maybe it's psychological. Um, but sure. with the, at the AOB, the major, the special forces major that, you know, is in charge there. Like I'm, I'm right next door to him and I'm talking to him every day. I'm talking to the uh, sergeant major every day. And those are the guys that are tasking me out. So it made it easier to understand expectations, I think, because um, I knew exactly what they wanted. And I'm sure they were getting tasked from the SOTIF, um in terms of whatever their information needs were. But I just felt like that was a lot easier um, to understand what the expectations were from the command. And also um, that we were just able to do things that were, um, a little more relaxed, I guess, in nature. So like we could go over to a local district um, compound and not wear body armor, you know, just just go over there in civilian clothes. So you don't look like, you know, you're ready to kill somebody. You know, you don't have all this gear on, you don't have a rifle. Um, you just go over there with your clothes on and a sidearm and um, a couple guys and an interpreter. And it's it's it feels more natural, if you will, to have that sure. sort of interaction. Hmm. And I, I thought it was helpful. Um to be able to do that on such a regular basis and have it not feel uh, as, as, as formal, you know, and as, as, as militarized, you know, I mean, it's kind of like count counter to what you think you're supposed to be doing, but being able to like, just kind of go over there and um, blend in a little more, I think was helpful. And you can do that with SF. You can't, uh, you really can't do that with conventional forces. It's not, we don't yeah. blend into anything with yeah. a 40, 40 man patrol no. plowing through the, the grape rows and <laughs> yeah. shooting a death blossom for every warning shot fired at us. You know, <laughs> subtle is not in our job description. Yeah. So when you were, when you were working with the, the SF guys, obviously you have that, that single layer of connection to the, the, the major. Did that also allow you to get better feedback as far as like what you were doing being effective? Cause I imagine in my mind, what you're doing, trying to work for a, a full bird colonel that you're never going to talk to. He doesn't know your capabilities. He doesn't, honestly, mm -hmm. he probably didn't care. You know, he, he probably just like, oh, just give him something to do. Let him go on a patrol to Talacan. That's how it like, felt. That's how it felt. Yeah. But with yeah. the ODA, did you, I mean, I'm, were you able to get some like tangible feedback on what you were doing and how it was making an effect? Yeah. So um, I don't know if I ever, 
Yeah, he would he would uh, sometimes, you know, kind of give a like an attaboy if something, you sure. know, notable happened. He was so busy that guy, I mean, that guy worked his ass off. Um, he was up till like four in the morning every day. Um, so I didn't expect much from him. Yeah. Um, in terms of like feedback, because he's just he was he was just busting his his butt so much. Um, but um, you know, I knew that the reporting that I was including in the sit reps was getting integrated into the like the broader report that he was sending up to right. the sort of um so i knew it was a value right it was it, it, it was it was making some impact and the best way honestly that i gauged that i was doing something right was that they didn't kick me off the base that was that was uh <laughs> yeah good point because yeah. I, I was told by some other guys they were like look if you show up with to work with an oda and these are small bases, right? They don't have a lot of beds. They don't have a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, they have limited supplies. Like if you're not, if you're just there and you're just taking a spot up, they're going to like, they're going to send your ass home. You're not going to stay there. They're not just going right. to let you be there. And I saw, so I knew that. And uh, I saw that happen to a contractor who showed up and he thought he was just going to kind of hang out and, you know, be with the, the Green Berets for a while. And like the Sergeant Major got sick of him. After a couple of days, I don't know what the guy did exactly. And it, the guy left the, the ops in and he was like, get this guy on the next chopper out of here as soon as possible. You know, just get rid of him. So I was oh, like, okay. Shit. I was like, confirmed. This does happen, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what so, was that dude's job? I can't. I, it was. Is he an HVAC I, mechanic? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was something like that. Um, he did some weird stuff. I think he like put a USB in one of the computers and like there was a bunch oh, of porn geez. all over it. And, oh God. And he was, uh, he could, he could sew for some reason. And he was like making a bulletproof sport jacket. I was all sorts of weird stuff. I don't know. It was supposed to be for the, uh, the district chief of police as like a gift or something. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he got, he got, so anyways, um, I, I remember getting like kind of, they kind of were feeling me out the first, like, several days i was there yeah. like 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 what like they kind of knew what i did but like what do you do like why are you here you know um, what is it you say you do here the two bombs yeah <laughs> so i got that vibe from this from the, the sergeant major in particular like you know he was he was a no-nonsense guy i liked him a lot but he did you know he was just like very direct mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. as you kind of would expect um from sergeant major and he he would ask, he asked me a lot of probing questions initially, just trying to figure out like what my value was. I think I think essentially, and then they gave me some responsibility, and uh, did a pretty good job with it. And then, kind of established myself after a few weeks. I think they kind of were like, okay, like he can he can contribute and he can take mm. some pressure off of us and help help with a couple lines of effort that otherwise somebody else has to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matt can focus on that. And so that's, I kind of just slotted into the niche that, uh, that they gave me and just, just went with it. And, uh, so you would, uh, you would patrol with the conventional guys. Did you patrol with SF, with SF or were they even patrolling that much around that time? Because things were starting to draw down so much. They were, they, they didn't go out very well. So the AOB guys did not go out very much. Um, mm. they were pretty much stuck at the AOB. They went out mm. a couple of times, but like we would go into the, the, uh, like the bazaar a few times, like they were yeah. doing elections. We went out there. So that, yeah. that counts. I mean, that's outside the wire, I guess. But um, the ODAs that were, you know, the, the spokes from the AOB, sure, those guys, 
those guys were going out. Yeah. And uh, they were doing a lot of stuff with ALP. So there was a Panjway ODA, not the AOB, but you know, a Panjway ODA. And those guys were going out and talking to the ALP a lot. Um, and they were, they were doing more active, you know, sort of um, missions, but, mm-hmm. but I, I was, those be- were the guys that we were working with most of the time. I mean, yeah, I, I think they probably also probably drew down um, a bit after. So I lose, I actually would have been not long after you got there that the, the EUD guy got killed right outside Spur Wangar. Um, and he was on a mission with, with the Panjway ODA. Um, it was the seventh group dudes too, right? It was seventh group guys. Yeah. 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 Um, because I mean, when we were there, they would they would patrol here and there, but like you said, they would mostly would go and they meet up with the ALP. They might go on. I think I always got the impression that they were bored. So if they could find an excuse to go for a short little walk, you know, outside of an ALP checkpoint, I they got would. the impression that they saw us as their bitches and they were happy to mm-hmm. use us for that fa- for that. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, they they were definitely well. Brian Kitching was happy to offer us up as their their own little strike force. Um, <laughs> oh no, I, I digress. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, they. It wouldn't surprise me if you know, not long after that UD guy got hit, they're like, "Hey, there's really no reason for us to be going out there and patrolling and looking for IEDs." And yeah. you know, we we have we have units for that. We need to focus on our mission, which is like you just mentioned, the FID and uh, the training aspect. Yeah, I yeah I know they they did uh, they they went out one time and uh, the vehicle I guess it was uh, the Mat V I guess um, I think that's like the monster truck right the uh, the MRAP is the monster the, the real the one that can hold like eight people in it nah the smaller the four seater oh like, that's the MATV yeah okay yeah yeah they I think uh, they went out and uh, that took an RPG that stuck in the it like just kind of lodged itself in it and it. They, everybody got out, but it just the whole thing was burnt to a crisp. Ooh. Um, I got a, I have a picture of it somewhere, but it was just like I just couldn't. I was like, man, I can't believe that. Like that's crazy. Like it, it pierced you know the armor, started the fire, and mm-hmm. then burnt the whole vehicle. Um, that's insane. Tires blew everything. I mean, they had to. So then they got in a big fight, and I, so I wasn't out on that. But th- yeah. so they, they, the point being that they were going out, they were doing some stuff, but most of it was. Uh, I think like training related with the ALP. Yeah. A lot of it was right. Yeah, but uh, going out and seeing uh, local elections, how that was done. We took the the DGov provided probably wasn't great optics, but took him out, uh, provided security for him while he visited the uh, election sites within the bazaar. We're doing that one time, um, but most of the stuff was a lot of interaction at the district center with right. with either the the police under the decop or the district governor and his guys so like almost daily going over there and just like being a fly on the wall going to all the shuras um trying to build a relationship in particular with the district governor was one of the main lines of effort that I was working on and then you never know people would just show up every day to talk to him to, for whatever reason disputes or they were friends or they were they were uh, from the same tribe and they wanted to talk about something. So just being present, I think, was right. actually kind of like half the job just to see what what would happen. But I went out. I went out. All, most of the uh, times I went outside the wire were with the conventional guys early on. And then it kind of changed and it became a more almost like a more diplomatic role with the SF guys. Mm. 
which I mean like that speaks to what we were just talking about like that, yeah, that yeah. role marries so well to the SF mission that it just makes perfect sense that that would be a, an attachment that you would you know that the OD would slap in there yeah yeah I think and you gotta have the flexibility too like yeah, there, yeah. when you go out with a 40, 40 man infantry platoon and 30 A&A and you got 60 people on the ground you're like hey that guy over there looks interesting. Can I go talk to that guy? They're like, dude, we can't turn this whole train around just so you can go talk to some fucking dude. Yeah. But SF be like, yeah, sure, let's go. Right. We got six six guys and a dog. Let's go. Yeah. You know, it's it's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the I think the guys that uh, we had a very small number of people that worked with SF, as a dozen or so that were out, and I think they had some of the most the greatest success just yeah. because the the it just made sense with the type of job you're doing to have. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the only way it worked, it worked really well with the guys at Kinjakak because that's company level. It's it's a lot smaller. And I could kind of be like, hey, I want to go talk to this guy. And they'd be like, all right, go talk to him, you know. And yeah, and we could, we could do that. But uh, it, at Masumgar, it was just too big and mm-hmm. unwieldy. And like the stuff they were doing, it'd be like some high level meeting in Kandahar City at some palace and like. Like what am I going to do? You know, like right. I can mm-hmm. I can take notes, but there's really nothing I can I can do at that time. Yeah, of, that, that one star general is not going to let you interrupt his conversation no. with the guy <laughs> to get a couple questions in. You know, no, no, yeah. it was it was fascinating to see that type of interaction. But like, mm. I for my job, it didn't uh, it made sense to be like as independent as possible, mm-hmm. and mm. that 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 worked at the company level, and it didn't worked. Uh, with uh, security force assistance teams as well, because they had a lot of direct yes. interaction with yeah. the with the uh, in my case with border police mm. and with uh, with A and A. So linked up with those guys for a little bit and worked with them. Um, total aside, you can cut this if you want, but uh, got to go out with Albanian special forces a couple times. Really? Just like okay. Random. Wow. They were in Spine Boldak, and there was like it was like their equivalent. Albania. Yeah, they're equivalent of like the Navy SEALs, I think. Mm. And these like guys are all like like just bear sized, like the biggest dudes. Like just <laughs> massive. <laughs> That's what they should be. Yeah. It's big yeah. old just massive big, Eastern massive European dudes. Muscle. And were they full of hate and anger or were they pretty chill? Uh the com- yeah, they were pretty I mean, you could tell it they were capable of mm-hmm. Yeah, of great yeah. violence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're their commander was a really nice guy. He spoke English. The other guys, I don't think, did. And yeah. uh, they all just kind of wore what they wanted to wear. They all had different weapons. Like, it was just, like, whatever they wanted. Like, their own, like, setup. And really? they all were... They were, So, I rode with them, and I don't know what we did. We went out and did something. And I was like... They were like, yeah, you're going to go with the Albanian guys. And I was like, oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> Does my Terp also speak Albanian? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, they put me in the back of a... Uh, MRAP with those guys and I don't know if they I just assumed they knew what they were doing and hmm. and now those guys I, are out you know doing raids in Azerbaijan for, <laughs> <laughs> blowing away goat farmers yeah, <laughs> right but they were it's they always were, amazing yeah. to me that all the different military yeah units that participated yeah the freaking UAE had Apaches flying look yeah. the idea of like an Arab country flying, flying Apaches, Apaches and in. killing people <laughs> The killing, like, just, it just blows my mind. Yeah. It's just so wild to me. I would, I always thought the, uh, when you went to back to CAF, you went to the boardwalk and you saw, like, all the different yeah. forces, like, walking around. It was like, uh, 
it was like the equivalent of the bar scene in Star Wars, you know, with all these like <laughs> yeah. different people. Yeah. It was so so weird. Just such a biz- that whole that whole scene was so bizarre. Like when you like come back from like being out in Panjway and then you go to mm-hmm. Calf and there's like TGI Friday. The DJ, yeah, got, you got your rifle slung over your back and you got a smoothie in one hand and a piece of pizza the size of your head in the other. You're <laughs> yeah. Like, this is going to hurt tomorrow, but fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just remember, um, so to give you a little background, Matt, like I, I like I joked about growing up Southern Baptist, but I grew up going to Romania in the summers between school on mission trips. Hmm. So when I would go to CAF and I'd see these Romanian soldiers, and I'd just like lay down a little bit of Romanian on them, and they'd be like, holy fuck, like this is an American soldier that can speak Romanian. Like it was a very, it was a very multicultural, multinational scene there. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool, actually, think about it. Albanians, yeah. apparently, too. Yeah, just, yeah, a little bit of everything. I, th- I think they were Romanian guys at uh, Masamgar, I think. I think they yeah, were. yeah, they were. Mm-hmm. I think there was a couple dudes stomping around there. Yeah, the Romanians were. They were the first country to plead to the coalition of the willing. You know, they. I think they were the last ones to, to duck leave. out because yeah, they, they were still there in 2017. They were the ones doing. Uh, they were responsible for the immediate security of CAF. It yeah. wasn't Americans. It was Romanians going out on patrol. Huh. Romanians love Americans. They do. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I. The only thing I saw they had built a smoke shack. Like they built this little tiny shack that mm. they could like just sit and I don't know why you would do this because you can just smoke outside, but they did it, and. Yeah. Uh, and then they would fly remote control planes around, and that was it. Really I never... interesting. <laughs> On yeah. an airfield? No, no, no. This was at Masamgar. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it was it was always neat to work with all the the different um, organizations. And as you mentioned, you run into them all over the place: Masamgar District Center. Um, and but going back to your time at the District Center, it wasn't completely quiet the whole time. You did have kind of one major uh, infraction. Yeah, we had, um, I think it was in July of 13, we had a, there was a, a complex attack on on the base. So to understand that, you have to understand that uh, when, we, when I'm saying district center, so it's like, it's four walls, but within those four walls, there's multiple compounds. It's not that big of an area, but uh, you've got the American special forces, Next to them, you have the uh, Afghan National Police. Next to them, you have uh, the district uh, governor and his facilities in the Shura Hall. Next to that, you used to have American conventional forces, but they left in, uh, June, I think, June or July of 13. So Afghan SF and that compound moved in. And then you have Afghan local police, and they've all got their own little built, little little compounds, right? Um just to set it up. And so, uh, yeah, these guys, uh, these two guys drove in in a sedan and they got to the exterior gate, which is manned by Afghan police. And these guys were wearing, uh, they were wearing uniforms and they, they basically told them that uh, they had a meeting uh, with the district chief of police and they needed to get in. They let him in. They drove in. Um, they parked their car in an alley between right in front of our gate the American SF gate. They got out. They walked around to another checkpoint that gets you into a different part of the, the compound. And they talked their way past those guys. And then they got to uh, the last compound uh, gate 
checkpoint, which gets you into the Shura Hall and the district mm-hmm. governor's offices. And the district governor was, he was meeting with some guys in the Shura uh, Hall area when these, these two guys approached. And uh, they got to this last guard. It's just one guy at this, this last checkpoint. And they, they showed him they had a, I think they had a pistol, a small arm of some kind. And, and uh, they showed him that they had suicide vests on. And they said, hey, we're here to kill the district governor. Uh, if you don't want to die, just let us let us go past. They didn't kill the guy. And so he let them go past and he waits. And then when they get, a, a, you know, 10, 15 feet past and they're almost in there, they're almost like they're almost there to the mission. The police guy turns around and he shoots them both in the back. I love it. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the they both are dead. One of the guys falls down face first dead the other guy falls down but he detonates um and i guess detonated into the ground so luckily the uh the police officer there the the a and p guy did not uh did not even get hurt didn't take a piece of shrapnel or anything Mm. and then meanwhile there's this vehicle that's sitting in front of the u.s uh, special forces gate and you know we've taken note of that it's sitting there and uh send in EOD and he goes out there and uh, takes, gets the robot um, sends that out, which can, which is amazing how those things work. They can, you know, open doors and cameras and, and we're watching all this from the ops and from the raid camera. So we can see everything that's happening and we can hear the radio. <laughs> nuts. Yeah. We, yeah. This is, it is, uh, we can hear all the communications and he, he's not able to find, he's trying to find the explosives and the wiring and stuff with the robot. Right. And, uh, he can't find it. So he's like, all right, well, I'm going to have to go in. And uh, he puts on the, the Hurt Locker suit and waddles out there. And he's trying to look for the explosives. And a phone starts ringing in the car while he's doing that. Mm, and that's when your asshole puckers couldn't get a toothpick in there. Yeah. We're all just watching this. Like, it's like a bad reality TV. Like we can see and hear everything that's happening and mm-hmm. we're not that far away. Um, right. That's, that's the thing that's blowing my mind. You're like 50 feet away. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, it's, if that's like, like a 2000 pound IED, like potentially nowhere on that place is safe. Yeah. Know? So he, this, this phone starts ringing and he's like, these, the EOD guy is very calm. It's amazing. Like, he's just like, yeah, uh, there's a phone ringing. Um, and we're thinking like some of the guys start talking and they're like, is that supposed to be hatched? Shouldn't we be jamming like all this mm-hmm. stuff? Like, I don't know anything. I'm not, I'm not an EW expert. I don't know how this works, you're, but you're right. It should be jammed. There should be no cell. <laughs> well, that, that was weird is they, so they had the jammers and jammers were supposed to prevent all that stuff. Yet at the same time, it's spur one gar all the time. and a are on their cell phones. Oh. <clears throat> so I don't, I'm, I most of that shit is fucking classified. So even if I knew it, I couldn't yeah. talk about it. But clearly, it left much to be desired. Or they had certain times when they turned it off. I I have no I idea. Know. I, I don't yeah. know. I, I don't know what what the resolution was to that. But it was it's terrifying. Uh, people that noted that it was <laughs> didn't seem right that that should have been happening. Mm-hmm. So I, it, yeah, it may, and it may not have been connected to like detonating the bomb, but it may have been too. Right. So who yeah. knows. But it, nothing happened. It didn't go off. Um, he finds the explosives that are packed under the seat and the wiring. It's uh, He said it was about 300 pounds of explosives mm. and um, disables it. And then they tow 
they tow the vehicle off to a field in front of the district center and blow it. And it was, it was a big, it. Like it was a big boom. That. Yeah. That it was fun. a, it was a big explosion. Um, and then they, the Afghans, um, going back to the suicide bombers, they, uh, they took the guy that was intact and they just threw him out on the side of the road in front of the district center, like medieval times, you know, just to like, it's like a, like putting a head on a, putting you know, a head on a pike. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. wait, just, just come pick him up. Right. Just like, mm-hmm. like a challenge. And uh, it was, you know, was, um, there was a big shura the next day and they didn't, they really didn't clean anything up. And this is at the shura hall. They just mm-hmm. kind of pose things down, but there's, <laughs> I was such a, you know, you can imagine, I mean, it's just gore everywhere. It's yeah, everywhere. blood everywhere. It's, it's yeah. July. I mean, it stinks. Oh. And, uh, smells they, nice. it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad, but I guess the idea was that they were thinking with that vehicle that we, uh, not, not me, but, um, the green berets would respond to gunfire and explosions at the district center and they would walk out and then they would detonate the, the IED and, and kill mm-hmm. them all. So, but luckily, no, I mean, we took, no one took no ANA casualty, no, no Afghan casualties, no American casualties, bombs disabled. I mean, it couldn't have been any better under the circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that would have been a huge deal if that had been. That would have been, yeah, yeah, that had been a pretty massive significant deal. You get attack. the DGov, you take out half an ODA yeah. from the inside of a district center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's one yeah. of those instances terrifying. where um, we, you know, you get a lot of threat reporting, right? And it almost becomes so commonplace that you just start to like not pay attention to it as much. Like, oh, okay, yeah, like mm-hmm. they say something's going to happen and it never happens. That leading up to that event, we'd actually gotten, um, there was a bunch of reporting that said something was going to happen in Panjway. So normally myself and um, uh, another guy would go over to the meet with the DGov around like between nine and 10 in the morning. And we got kind of rich, you know, we, we got routinized about it. We were doing it consistently way too often. And we talked about a couple of days before this attack happened, we were like, yeah, we need to vary our times a little bit because this is getting way too predictable. And mm-hmm. and uh, sure enough, a couple of days later, um, they hit it. I, I think the attack happened around 945, 10 o'clock. I was like, well, maybe they were trying to see if they could get a couple more people inside. Um, we certainly would have been over there under normal circumstances. And uh, says Lucky dodged, dodged an IED um, mm-hmm. or a suicide vest on that that occasion so it was uh so i think um i mean this is a good chance to to shine a light on the civilian you know contribution to the war effort in afghanistan so one of the things that you informed us about about the people in your job is that you guys had people that were killed you know killed in the line of duty and so i think we should take a moment to kind of tell those people's stories a little bit, you know, what you know, and uh, just kind of realize that these are people who didn't necessarily sign up for that kind of exposure, but who ultimately ended up paying that sacrifice because everybody immediately thinks about the soldiers who died in war, but people often forget that in this most recent conflict that civilians were intricately tied up into many, many aspects of it. And I don't know how many civilians have been killed in Afghanistan. American civilians, there's no telling. You know, yeah, a few. I mean, a good number would be a good guess. So, you know, it's something that was part of your job was an inherent risk involved in that, exposing yourself to those kinds of risk for this job. So, you know, could you give us a little bit of a detail about what you do know about what happened to some of your colleagues and some of the folks in your program? 
Yeah. Um, so while I was there, luckily, I don't think any of my my training cohort was were killed or wounded. Um, mm. I know um, one of my good friends was involved in an explosion, but didn't have any significant injuries. Um, another complex attack actually on the base he was at where it blew him out of a, a shower naked, which is kind of funny in retrospect, but, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, prior, I mean, you think about the nature of the job, like you're, you're supposed to be going out on essentially combat operations. Right. So, um, even though that's not your job to do that, um, you're, you're putting yourself in those positions potentially where something could happen. And there were, um, three people that I know of, Prior to my, they were not there at the time I was there, but that were killed. Um, w- one in Iraq at uh, at a meeting. It was an IED that went off. I think it was in Baghdad. Um, was killed in the blast. Uh, there was a, a guy in Afghanistan who was killed in an IED explosion as well, I believe. And there was a woman in Afghanistan that was in a village uh, that was that was actually burned to death uh, by a local villager. Burned um, alive, right? Burned alive, yeah, yeah. And you said that that one was—it was like it wasn't even necessarily a Taliban guy. He was just offended by her presence. Yeah, it's not really. I mean, no. he probably was Taliban, but I mean, he, yeah, he could have been. Um, it's hard to know because the guy's dead. What happened was um, she was in the village doing interviews. Was, I think this was in eastern Afghanistan, and uh, a, a guy, best best you can tell, took offense to her being a woman, you know, being in the village, just being there, just being there. Um, and he poured a fuel of some kind on her and then set her on fire. So her, her team leader, uh, chased the guy down and shot him. So, yeah. So that, that, uh, so it's motivations hard to gauge. Um, but it's probably Mm -hmm. either Taliban hated women or both. And he just did what he did. So, um, so yeah, she. I think she survived initially, but she died. I, I believe she did, died several weeks later from the from the injuries. So, um, so yeah, it, it, there's not a lot of civilians out there, or there weren't, but there's there was there was some, you know, um, mm-hmm. that were actually in more forward locations. And I don't know what casualty numbers look like at all. Um, I just know anecdotally. I, I know the three people that were killed. I don't know how many people were you know, took significant injuries, Yeah, at least doing the stuff I was doing. Um, so I, I it's, they, I don't know what the stats are on that at all, but there's, you know, definitely people out there that were putting themselves at risk. And, uh, I mean, you had Homeland security and the DEA, FBI, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, other, you know, federal law enforcement agencies. Um, you had people like yourself that were, you know, DOD employees, you had contractors, you know, going out and servicing the blimps or repairing crow systems. I mean, that that's one of the, it's like the great lie of uh, the the modern war on terror, especially when we went through this phase where like we were obsessed with troop numbers. We only have 12,000 troops in Afghanistan. Well, no, we don't because maybe there's 12,000 people that have a, you know, a military, you know, ID with a rank on it but there's three times as many people servicing airplanes and filling fuel and going out on patrols with soft and collecting information or doing counter narcotics operations or servicing Afghan Blackhawks or you name it. Um, so to pretend that the, the war on terror was a purely military effort, uh, it's just wrong. Mm-hmm. 
That's a unique a unique attribute of this particular war was that civilians were so prevalent everywhere you went. Even out in the boonies in Panjway, we had civilians yeah, around. You know? We had we freaking had laundry, laundry facility on Sparrowingar, <laughs> yeah. Like these poor dudes from the Philippines who were up there making probably seven fifty an hour instead of two dollars an hour. Right. And you know, they were but I mean if Sparrowingar had been not on a mountain, they could have gotten rocketed and mortared and everything else. So yeah. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable, really. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, definitely a lot of law enforcement uh, professionals doing training missions that I ran into. Yeah. Um, which is not, you know, it's not necessarily going out, maybe not necessarily going outside the wire a whole lot, but you're, you, you there's that green on blue threat. Um, that mm-hmm. was, that's, yeah, that yeah. to me is in some ways just as risky as, you know, getting shot on a patrol, right? Because you don't, because you can't see any of that coming at all. Mm-hmm. You just, um, so you think about it, but it's like, well, the best I can do is like try to be cool with these guys, and if they like me, maybe they won't shoot me. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the strategy. Yeah. Did you find yourself running into a lot of fellow civilians while you're out there? I mean, did you guys kind of like walk down the boardwalk and be like, "You're not"? No, just everybody you were around was pretty much military. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, once at Mossamgar, there were there were a lot, there were a fair number of civilians there uh it's you know much bigger base right so um but law enforcement and professionals some intel people contractors um of different stripes but once i got out to the aob there was there was one i think there was one intel analyst that was a contractor and uh yeah yeah and there was another <laughs> and there was another guy i won't even like hint yeah. at, hint at what he but he was doing some other stuff and that was it other than interpret, you know, there were interpreters obviously, but sure. Um, and people that were, uh, local nationals helping clean stuff and cook and that sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But, uh, it was, yeah, with the SF guys, it was just me and the other, uh, contract analysts that were the only, I think we were the only two civilians that were in like the, the kind of the, the ops in with the core of the the team there. So it's pretty, pretty unusual. Pretty, pretty small company. Yeah. Hmm. So as you kind of, you drew that whole experience to a close and as we draw the episode kind of to a close, we kind of like to, to give our guests the chance to either, you know, either reflect on, on their experience or just bring up any kind of points that we didn't have a chance to talk about during the normal episode. So from here to the end of the the episodes, kind of the floor is yours, man. Well, I I do want to say that one thing that I, not that I didn't think this going into it, but I was the professionalism and the decency and the work ethic of both the conventional guys I worked with and the SF guys was, was fantastic. Um, we have, we've got a great military. Um, and I I saw really nothing but guys trying to, to dedicate it to doing the job, trying to do the best they could, um, doing it under difficult circumstances. And, uh, I felt like people treated me, even though I was a civilian and I knew that there was probably some bias, you know, dealing with a civilian that um, it wasn't hard. Once people saw that you were willing to work hard and support that, mm-hmm. um, that any bias that was there seemed to go away pretty quickly. And it was just about uh, the, the camaraderie and the teamwork um, was something that I haven't experienced anywhere else I've ever worked uh, in mm-hmm. my life. It's just, it's such a unique environment. And so um, I really enjoyed I, re- I really enjoyed working with um, with both the conventional and the SF guys. It's different experiences, but it was it was fantastic, and I'm glad I did it. 
um, man, I would have done whatever was required to support their missions while I was there. So wanted to mention that, um, you know, also that, you know, seeing what's happened over the last couple months and Taliban taking over Afghanistan, that's, uh, I'm sure you guys, it was a hard couple of weeks to watch that, um, especially the latter last couple of weeks of it. At least it was for me, just kind of mm-hmm. this like, I knew things weren't going to end well there. Like it wasn't like we were going to win quote unquote. Right. But it was really hard to watch. Um, but still, I, I don't think it was for nothing. I, I think there were a lot of, a lot of things that happened that were positive. There's so much transformation that happened within Afghanistan from, you know, when we initially went in, in 2001 to when we left just a couple months ago that I'm hoping will um, allow the country to somehow navigate past where it's at right now, which is in a really bad spot. Um, and that some of the seeds of, you know, Western democracy, liberalism, whatever you want to call it, have been planted. And that that younger generation that's actually had a relatively peaceful existence, those that are, say, under 30 years old, mm-hmm. um, maybe that's an, an opportunity for something to change within the country. So, if, you know, if, if service members or other people that have, have served over there are looking at the situation and they're dismayed by it. I don't think it's, I'm not one of those people that says it was all for nothing. I do think that there were positives that came out of it outside of the obvious counterterrorism uh, piece of it. And um, just say not to, not to judge the situation quite yet. It's not, things aren't, aren't set. It's a fluid situation. Um, and uh, I, I, I think all the sacrifice was not in vain. I think, I think that uh, you could still see things change for the better. May not look like this country, you know, it's going to be different. Mm. But I, I don't think it was um, it was all for nothing. So, you know, that's that's the way I choose to look at it. Yeah, yeah. well, we certainly reflect and appreciate that sentiment. I mean, it's literally on our little a little badge, t-shirt. yeah, <laughs> it's on the T-shirt of it was yeah. not a waste. You know, it wasn't a waste. And there's a part of me that hopes that that young woman in Kandahar or better yet young woman in Kabul who was, you know, my age when, uh, when we invaded now is a 30 something year old woman who has lived a, a real life in the, over the past 15 years because of our presence there. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would hope that that cements something in that person's mind and they're able to, to act counter to what has resulted, you know, the it's, it's a, it's a good point you mentioned to me. The the story's not done yet. No, the the fall of Afghanistan happened in the fall, going into the winter. Mm-hmm. You know, the NRF is not done. You know, the you know Saman Masood is not done fighting. You know, the Taliban is already fighting. You know, infighting within their own organization as well as fighting ISIS. Yeah, there are a lot of parties that have a lot of interest in the Taliban not being in charge. That's right. That's and, right. And uh, I think springtime. It's going to be very, it's going to be very, the Taliban should enjoy what they have right now. Hmm. Yeah. Because they have it easy right now. No one's fighting them. They got to figure it out on their own. They got their own disputes to figure out. But when spring comes around, it's not going to be easy again. No. And if the, the question, you know, if you're asking yourself, you know, when, when in recent, relatively recent history as a centralized power, but able to control all of Afghanistan, the answer is never. Never. It's, never. it's, it's never happens. And the Taliban, uh, I think people might, overestimate how able they are, how capable they are to actually extend 
into some of these territories that they don't have traditional seats of power in. And that includes areas where ISIS is out in the middle of nowhere um, Mm -hmm. in, you know, the mountains in the east and the northeast, um, you know, Nuristan, for example, like Mm. to think that I I don't have a lot of uh, certainly don't want ISIS to win, but I I don't have a lot of confidence that the Taliban are going to be able to project power into some of these far flung areas. And that, like you said, you could see some some resistance uh, movements start to gain a little bit of traction and, you know, People like to pick a winner, especially in Afghanistan. And once you start seeing the scales tip a little bit, you can have all sorts of changes happen. So it's it's not over. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the Taliban is such a tradition of you know splits and shelves. You yeah. got the Haqqanis, you've got ISIS. I mean, ISIS is basically just all the super, super you know conservative Taliban, Taliban yeah. that don't <laughs> like what the current Taliban is doing. They're yeah. not even really ISIS. You're just like, well, I still want to be a bad guy. I still want to be. I want to be badder than those guys. So mm-hmm. we'll yeah. fly under the, the the black flag instead of the white flag. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I like your sentiment there. You know, Afghanistan's story is not written yet. Uh, I certainly don't don't want to write off the 39 million and three quarters Afghans that aren't Taliban because mm-hmm. um, they're they want to fight. You know, if if someone's willing to give them the, the means and the assistance, they will fight and they will they will. I, they will push him out of Kabul at some point. That's yeah. my. That's my prediction. Yeah, they're not. Uh, they're not. I mean, Afghans are not. They're not cowards. Um, and they no. will. They are fighters. I mean, people yeah. have made a lot of proclamations about what happened with the security forces when the Taliban took back over. That really has nothing to do with whether there's there's the will to fight or not. It's just. Um, they had no ammo. It, yeah, I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they yeah, were. They, they had no supplies. Like the. Yeah. I don't blame them. I would give it up too. And they're, they're SF guys, you know, God bless them. Those guys, Man. a lot of those guys fought to the end because they knew there was no other. And they no aren't, they are their surrender is not going to be accepted. Mm. No, you know? no. And so there, yeah. I mean, so there, uh, people chose to look at, at, at the instances where forces just rolled up and that did happen, but there were also instances where they did, they, they fought as lo- as hard as they could for as long as they could, but you can't, like you said, you can't fight without bullets. So, um, that's what happened at Massimgar. They they fought until they were out of food and they were out of water and they were out of ammo and they're like, we got to go. And they flew they flew Blackhawks in and took them up uh, to uh, Bob Wilson. But they fought to the end. But there were a lot of places, especially a lot of the really tiny bases mm-hmm. where they're like, we haven't had a resupply in six months. Yeah. You know, we we pulled out and we said, hey, you guys got this, but we're even though we've been your entire logistics chain for the past 15 years, you got to figure that one out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It sucks. So, yeah, I like it. We're not going to count them out. Uh, Matt, thank you. Uh, this is one of the more probably the mo- I'm going to say the most unique viewpoint that we've had on mm-hmm. on the podcast. Very insightful. And refreshing because it's. As much as we love our military bros, it's really nice to see the other side. It is, uh, and to get a perspective that's that's not tainted by our um, cult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not tainted by the determination to wreak violence upon all and, and such. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I yeah, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate what you're doing. Like I said when we talked a couple of days ago, I think uh, basically what you're creating is like an oral history of you know a particular facet of the of of the conflict and i don't think anybody else is doing anything like that uh, as far as i've seen so it's um i think it historically it'll be a, a unique uh document if you will that'll actually help people understand like at least what this one little piece of the the war right. was like mm-hmm. and 
I hope I did it justice while my memory's still good. And I appreciate, um, don't get a chance to talk about this stuff very often. So I appreciate you guys uh, yeah. Yeah. having me on. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great project. Great. Appreciate it, Matt. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of season three of the Panjway podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.